Good evening. How are we doing? Hey, if you have a Bible with you, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. John chapter 4, if you go ahead and grab your Bible. We'll be, we'll be moving a little bit quickly through the book of John as we pick up the pace here. If you remember from chapter 1, there was a prologue where we learned about this word and the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and he was filled with grace and truth. And then we saw the Jewish leaders begin to ask questions about this new guy on the scene named Jesus and trying to figure out who he was and what he was all about. In the back half of chapter one, what we're going to see is Jesus calls his first disciples and begins to invite people to follow after him. And Jesus continues to this day to invite people to follow after him. In the second chapter, we see Jesus' first miracle. And his first miracle happens at a wedding where he turns water into wine in this famous miracle and shows his divine power. In the second half of chapter 2, what we see is Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. We see Jesus upending the religious order of the day and claiming that he has the authority to do so. In John chapter 3, we see a famous interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the night and begins to ask questions. And out of John chapter 3, we have a verse so famous, people who aren't even believers and don't want to be believers know it, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That so whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Jesus' ministry is starting to build, and people are starting to be interested in who he is. And the question of who is this Jesus is starting to be on everyone's mind and everyone's tongue. And tonight, tonight we're going to begin to look at who Jesus himself claims to be. But in order to get us there, I want to get our minds around what it means uh, for Jesus to make some claims about himself. And in order to do so, if you don't mind for just a moment, I want to talk to you about superhero movies. You good with that? Any, any super Marvel, Marvel fans, DC, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to point something out, and it's like generally true. And if you're like the person who knows every movie and every character, you'll probably find a flaw in this. But like roll with me here, okay? Um, I want to point out that just about every superhero movie is fundamentally the same plot. And and here's what I mean by this. Here's how almost every movie begins. Almost every movie begins with everything being pretty good. It's peaceful, it's quiet, people are having a nice cup of coffee and a lovely meal, the flowers are growing out of the ground and the sun is shining. Almost every Marvel movie begins this way, things are good in the world. And then act two of almost every single Marvel movie is this, something goes terribly wrong, right? The aliens invade, a bomb goes off, someone gets kidnapped, someone gets killed, something goes horribly wrong. And then act three is always the exact same. At that point, the superhero comes on to the scene. Again, act one, everything is good and everything is right with the world. Act two, something goes terribly wrong. Act three, the superhero goes on to the scene and the movie goes apace and ends with a giant battle scene. It's the same movie over and over and over again. And yet this is wild. These movies have made billions of dollars for Marvel. And we keep going back and seeing the same movie over and over again. You ever thought about that? Why do we keep going and seeing the same film, the same story over and over again? And the reason to me is obvious. Because the storyline they're following isn't original to Marvel. It is the storyline that God has been telling in this world since the very beginning. See, here's how the Bible begins. The Bible begins with God creating the world, and it is good. The world is right. It's as it should be. And then right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, something goes terribly wrong. 
Sin enters into the world. Human beings rebel against God. Human beings say, forget you, God. We're going to define our own truth, our own morality, and go our own direction. And here's what the entire Old Testament is. From the moment the first human beings sin, all the way to the end of it. The entire Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, is God sending various heroes into the world to deal with the sin the rebellion, and the brokenness of God's people. In the Old Testament, there are three different kinds of heroes. I want you to write these three names down. Three different kinds of heroes. The first sent into the world by God are prophets. Say that with me, prophets. The second sent into this world are priests. Say that with me, priests. The third sent into the world are kings. Say that with me, kings. God sends prophets. God sends priests. And God sends kings. You see prophets, like Moses is described as a prophet. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha or the great prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets had one job, and their job was to communicate who God was to the people of God. See, when you and I hear prophecy, we tend to think of telling the future, which happens sometimes with the prophets. But more often than not, the prophets use a phrase, and this is the phrase in the old King James Version. The prophets would use this phrase. They would say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God has to say. Listen up, they would say. This is what God has to say, and this is what God is like. God sent prophets into the world to communicate what he was like. The second kind of individual that God sent into the world were the priests. The priests had a different kind of job. The job of the priests, beginning with Aaron, was to be the people who would actually atone for the sins of the people. That the people had sinned against God, and God had every right to strike them down where they stood, and yet God sends these priests to deal with the sin of God's people. And all throughout the Old Testament, as we see the tabernacle and the temple, you have priests laboring day in and day out to deal with the sins of God's people. You have prophets. You have priests. What's the third one? We have kings. God sends kings to the people of Israel, and originally he doesn't want to do it, but the people beg for a king. And one of the things about our God is when we want something so bad, sometimes he'll give it to us even though it's not the best thing for us. And God sends kings to the people of Israel to rule over God's people. So you have David and Solomon. You have kings all throughout the Old Testament, and these kings have this job, and that is to rule, to govern, to tell the people of God what to do. You have prophets, and you have priests, and you have kings. And all throughout the Old Testament, God sends these individuals to deal with the brokenness of the world. But here's what you need to understand. Just like every superhero movie, you ever notice like about halfway into the superhero movie, the bad guy, whoever the main bad guy is, ends up fighting some of the superheroes? And do the superheroes ever win halfway through the movie? No, because they got to make the second half of the movie, right? They always lose in that scene. They, they never can do it. And then they spend the next half of the movie being like, you know what we got to do? We got to work together and we got to bring in a ringer like someone else. And then they fight the guy again and they always win, right? That's the story you're so familiar with. And the reason you're so comfortable with that story is because that's the story God told. See, God would send prophets, but prophets were not enough for the people of God to be rescued. He would send priests, but the priests were not enough on their own for the people to be rescued. He would send kings. But the kings were not strong enough on their own to rescue God's people from the consequences of their sin. And the entire Old Testament is the story of God sending prophets and priests and kings into this world. And they cannot defeat evil because they're not strong enough on their own. But then, John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Jesus comes onto the scene, and here's what I need you to know about my Jesus. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He's not just a king. He's all three in one. God sent into this world. Listen to me. Write this down. Jesus is the final prophet who decisively reveals to us who God is. You want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. He's the final prophet who tells us what God is like. You know what Jesus is? Jesus is the final priest who decisively deals with the sins of God's people. Jesus is the priest who atones for the sins of the world. And then finally, Jesus is the final king, the promised Messiah, the one who is brought into this world to rule and to govern God's people. And just like in every superhero movie you've ever seen, when those powers get combined and pushed against the evil forces in this world, the evil forces stand no chance. That's Jesus. Listen, the reason you're so comfortable watching the same superhero movie over and over and over and over again is because that's the story of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in this world, to defeat evil, to redeem God's people, to rescue and save. And I want you to see that today as we go to John chapter 4. I want you to see how this begins as Jesus begins to reveal his identity to the world. John chapter 4 and verse 3 says this. It says, so he, so Jesus left Judea and went once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and there he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground which Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And here's what happens in John chapter four. Jesus goes on to have this conversation with this woman. And this conversation with this woman, um, I think the best parallel to this conversation with this woman is what cabin time has been like for some of your cabins. And here's what I mean by that. Um, you know how cabin time, when you're like having a discussion with the group, can sometimes just be all over the place? Raise your hand if you've had an all over the place cabin time discussion. Okay, most of you, you know exactly what that's like. You're like talking about this, and then suddenly you're talking about the end times, and then you're talking about sex, and you're asking, is there sex in the end times? Like, now you're just, you're asking all of these questions. I, I bring it back, I just, I, this is what I've been in many of these. Wow, that really got you. Okay, come back. Listen, listen, listen. But this is the kind of conversation Jesus has with this woman. And it includes, it includes sex. He's going to talk to her about husbands and how many husbands she's had. They're going to talk about water and survival and living water and where they're supposed to worship, her life and her story. It's this convoluted, complex conversation they have. And at the end of this conversation, it's almost like this woman throws up her hands in verse 25. Skip down to verse 25. Here's what the woman says. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Like in other words, we just had a very confusing conversation. But someday, the Messiah is going to explain it all to us. Now, now, one thing I want to point out before we move on is what John helps us understand a little bit. Messiah, you'll see that word Messiah there. And then you'll see in the parentheses here in my translation, it says called Christ. I want you to know those words are synonyms. So when I say Jesus the Messiah... And I say Jesus Christ, I'm saying the same exact thing. And I want you to see what that means in the very next verse. She says, I know that the Messiah called Christ will explain everything when he comes. And then Jesus declares in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, the very first time Jesus 
reveals himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, the very first time this happens is not in a public assembly, it's not in a church service, it's not in a synagogue, it's not in a famous place. He is talking to a messy, broken woman whose life has been complicated beyond all belief. She has had five husbands, and she's currently sleeping with someone who's not her husband. Like if any of you have kind of declared yourself too sinful, too far gone for Jesus to actually want anything to do with you, might I remind you that this woman is about as messy as it gets on every front, and Jesus is like, you know who I want to reveal myself to? This woman. Because that's what my Jesus does. Like again, to anyone in this room who just thinks you're too far gone for Jesus, you don't know my Jesus. He loves people like you. The whole reason he came was for people like you. And he declares, I, the one who's speaking to you, am him. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And I want to stop and talk about that word Messiah for a second. Um, The word Messiah, again, the word Christ, these are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Um, When I say Jesus Christ, I am not saying Jesus' first and last name. We get that, right? It's not like I'm Mr. Christ over there, right? Like Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. When I say Jesus Christ, I am claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the word Messiah in the Hebrew language simply means the anointed one. The anointed one. See, here's what would happen in the ancient world. When they said, it's your turn to be king, they would have a whole ceremony where they would anoint someone. They would pour oil over their head. And that ceremony of anointing them is what would make them the king. Now, I bet you think that's kind of strange. Like, yeah, that's weird. It's weird that they'd pour oil over someone's head and that would make them the king. And you say that with a straight face, even though in our country, we have someone get up, put their hand on a Bible, put their hand in the air and swear an oath. We've all done, like they get this. This is the ceremony they did to make someone king. They would anoint them with oil. And so when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, we are saying that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the anointed king. When I claim that Jesus is the Christ, when I say the words Jesus Christ, don't miss this. I am claiming that Jesus is the final king who rules and governs God's people. I'm making the claim that Jesus is king. And here's what I want you to know. Far too many people don't want Jesus as king. They would prefer for him to be their advisor. Far too many people, maybe even some of you in this room, don't want Jesus to be your king like he actually gets to call the shots. You just want him to give you comforting words and give you good advice when you're in a pickle with your friends and you're not sure how to work it out. What you want from Jesus is for him to be your advisor. And Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the final king of Israel says, no, 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 you can have me as your king or you can have me not at all. Jesus is the final king, and for us to say Jesus is king is for me to say I am willing to submit to what he says because he is in charge of my life. For me to say Jesus is king is for me to say I am willing to do what Jesus says even when I do not agree with it, even when I do not like it. Like in other words, so many people say Jesus is king, he is the Lord, he's in charge, he's the Messiah, and then Jesus says something like this, cool, go ahead and take some of your money, I know you don't have much because you're in high school, but go ahead and take a percentage of it, just give it to the poor. And you're like, oh, whoa, 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 I don't want to give away my money. I need my money. Like, we want Jesus as an advisor, but not a king. Or like, we look to the word of God, and the word of God says that we should only have sexual relations within the context of marriage. And we're like, whoa, I just wanted your advice, Jesus. I didn't want you to tell me what to do. Like, Jesus tells us we're actually supposed to forgive people who have wounded us. And a lot of us go, no, 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 Jesus, I wanted nice advice and sweet words and maybe a nice little saying, but I didn't want to actually have to do what you said. But here's the deal. Every time you claim that Jesus is the Christ, you are making the statement that he is the king of your life, that he's in charge. 
Can I just stand before you and tell you that Jesus is in charge of my life? Like, just personally, like, I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a perfect follower of Jesus. There are times I fall short. There are times I don't walk in obedience. But long ago, I made a decision that if Jesus said so, I was going to do it, even if I didn't understand it. And there were going to be times where I was just going to step out in faith and go, okay, God, you told me to do this, so I'm going to do it, even if I don't understand, because Jesus is not just my advisor. He's not just wise counsel. He's my king. See, the very first claim Jesus makes in John chapter 4 is that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the final king of God's people. I want you to fast forward now. Again, we're going to be moving quick to John chapter 5 if you want to flip the page. Here's what I want you to see, another story where Jesus makes a claim. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, there's a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida. Let me just pause on that. The Hebrew word Beth just means house. And Bethsaida means the house of mercy. I want us to just keep that in our mind. The miracle we're about to witness from Jesus happens in the house of mercy. It's called Bethsaida and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. One who had been there as an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get to the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone gets in ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. Like, I want you to see that right from the beginning, Jesus is doing miracles. But I want you to also understand that Jesus was not just a magician who was trying to impress people with his divine power. If that was Jesus' mission, he would have just walked around healing everyone all the time. But that's not what he did. The purpose of Jesus' miracles was to validate and to affirm his teaching. Jesus had a ministry of teaching where he was trying to reveal God to the people. And through that ministry, miracles validated. I want you to see how it goes on in verse 9. It says, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so to the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and the loft forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked them, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who had been healed had no idea who it was. How awesome is that? He's like, I have no idea who healed me. I'm literally, I'm just clueless, right? And he goes on, he says, for Jesus had slipped away uh, into the crowd that was there. Like, I love this. Jesus heals him and he's like, peace, right? He just like slips away. It says later Jesus found him. So it's like Jesus knew who he was. Jesus slips away. He finds him later. And listen to what Jesus says. This is so shocking. You would have think Jesus came by and like, boy. He didn't say that. Here's what he says in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. That's encouraging. But then look at the next words. Stop sinning. <laughs> what? <laughs> Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Oh my goodness. This is what Jesus has to say. It says the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So like here's the, here's the remarkable thing about Jesus. Remember I just said, Jesus doesn't just do miracles to show off. He isn't like, look what I can do, right? He does miracles to make a point. And the point he is trying to make here is actually encapsulated in his warning to this man. Like in other words, he goes, listen, you, you got healed of an illness, of a disease, of something that was ailing your body and keeping you from moving. And that is a good thing. But Jesus is acutely aware of something that I need everyone in this room to be aware of too. That damage to your physical body is not the worst thing that can happen to you. 
Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. What Jesus understands when he says, stop sinning lest something worse happen to you, is that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you would gain the whole world but lose your soul. And Jesus knows that he came into this world not just to heal physical bodies, but to do something so much more profound, and that is to win souls by forgiving sins. Like, here's what I need you to know about my Jesus. He has just revealed himself to be the Messiah, the final king of Israel. But I also want you to know this, that Jesus' mission circled, targeted, centered on this idea of forgiving the sins of God's people. Like, listen, Jesus is the final king who rules God's people. But Jesus is also the final priest who decisively deals with the sins of God's people. This is what Jesus does. He comes into the world to deal with sin. Jesus comes into this world knowing that the greatest problem in your life is not the circumstances of your life, but rather the sin in this world. Jesus understands that for this man who is paralyzed, like hard to think of a thing physically more debilitating than being paralyzed, right? Like by definition, the paralyzed man has no function over his body, and Jesus goes, that's not the worst state you can be in. The worst state you can be in is having unforgiven sin before God. And Jesus comes into this world to be the final priest. The priest would be the ones who would go into the temple and offer sacrifices before God to atone for the sins of God's people. And Jesus comes in as the priest and offers a sacrifice, not of a bull, not of a goat, but of himself. That is why in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that Jesus will die a brutal and bloody death on the cross to atone for the sins of God's people. And listen to me. To trust in Jesus and to believe in him is to actually believe that he has already paid for your sins. Like, this is so remarkable because I think there's so many of you in this room who are Christians. Like, you love Jesus and you trust Jesus and you're following after him, but there's this sneaking suspicion inside of you that Jesus has only forgiven most of your sins or some of your sins. And so what you do is you go, well, I trusted Jesus back in middle school, and I'm sure he forgave all my sins before that, but has he forgiven all my sins since then? And here's the answer to that question. Jesus is the final priest who decisively deals with the sins of the world. Can you write this down? That Jesus has forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future? All of my sins, past, present, and future, meaning the sins you committed last week, Jesus already forgave on the cross. The sins you will commit tonight, Jesus has already forgiven on the cross. The sins you will commit in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, God has already forgiven those through Christ on the cross. I just need you to know this personally. Like, I need you to know that I'm a sinner. I need you to know my life is not perfect. Like, all of you only know me as, like, preacher, camp, speaker guy. You don't know that I have walked in sin. I have stumbled in things. I have stumbled in sin and wickedness. I have fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what's so beautiful? Jesus has forgiven that. So I look back on my life and I see the ways I've stumbled into lies, the ways I've stumbled into lust, the ways I've stumbled, stumbled into anger and into pride. And I look back on those things. But can I tell you the beautiful thing? I don't beat myself up. I don't sit every day and just be like, you're the worst, Brian, you're terrible, I hate you, you're the worst, why? Not because I don't take sin seriously, but because I take Jesus seriously when he said it's finished, it's over. My sin is actually forgiven. Someone in this room just needs to get this tonight. Your sin is actually forgiven, 100, fully, finally, forever forgiven through Jesus Christ, because that's why he came into the world. It goes on this way in verse 18. It says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Now, why do they want to kill him? 
because he was a nice guy who was healing people and was helping out the poor. He was a nice fellow who would never hurt anyone. Nope, not that. It says this, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You want to know the stunning thing about Jesus? Jesus claims to be equal with God. Jesus does not claim to be a nice teacher or a good person or merely a prophet sent from God. He claims to be God himself. He says, God and I, the Father and I are one. And this is a stunning claim. And this stunning claim should actually prevent us from ever insulting Jesus in such a way that suggests he is a nice teacher but not God. It's like this. Um, If I were to tell you, my name is Brian Howard, I'm a teaching pastor at a church in Southern California, and I am also a deity, a god of the planet Mars. And I just kind of like moved on from there. There would be like, you would be made of questions, right? You'd be like, excuse me, you blew past that whole you're a deity and a god of the planet Mars pretty quickly there. And if I were to say that and then continue teaching you all week, there could only be three things that would actually be the case. One is I am actually a deity and the god of the planet Mars. And that would have all kinds of implications, right? Like that would be just like, okay, how do we put that together, right? But of course, the other options are that I'm lying to you, that I'm not actually a deity and the god of the planet Mars. I'm just a liar. But I'm saying that so I can control you. I'm saying that so I can manipulate you. I'm saying that as a power play so that you'll listen to what I say more firmly. I could be the god of the planet Mars. I could be lying to you. Or, Or of course, I could be a complete lunatic. Like I could just be out of my mind. I could think I actually was a god of the planet Mars, but I'm not. And here's the deal. If I actually am a god of something, then you should actually listen to that, and that's a stunning claim that should reshape your life. But if I'm a liar, or if I'm so crazy that I actually believe I am a deity and the god of the planet Mars, you should not listen to anything else I have to say. And see, this is the confrontation that we need to make of any of you who view Jesus as this nice, lovely, moral teacher who cared about the poor and cared about the hurting and was lovely and was compassionate and empathetic, if you believe Jesus was a good teacher and also claimed to be God, you've got to do something with this. C.S. Lewis famously says it this way. He says, I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. People say this. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, which is just such great writing, or or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for the fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense of him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you're writing down notes, write this down about my Jesus. Jesus is either a liar and he's not God. He's a lunatic who thinks he is God, but he isn't. Or he is Lord of all, seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Those are your only choices. You ultimately have to come to this grips of what are you going to do with Jesus and who is he actually? You can't just say he's a moral teacher. You can't just say he's a nice man. Everyone loves to put to Jesus and be like, Jesus was empathetic and kind and nice and lovely. And all of those things are true up until a point. He also claimed to be God and you've got to do something with that claim. I want you to see how this goes on now. Fast forward to John chapter six. 
John chapter 6 and verse 1 says this. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed over to the, sh- the shore, or the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the crowd coming toward them, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I love this about Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm going to ask a question, and this is really just to test you and see what you're going to do with this. Like, I want you to know Jesus is in charge, and he actually feels the authority and the confidence to tell you what to do in your life and to put you in situations that test you. And if that bothers you, it's because you haven't acknowledged that Jesus is actually in charge. He gets to do whatever he wants with me. If he wants to test me and put me through hard things in life to test my faith and see where I'm at, he can do that. He has that kind of authority. Verse 7, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in the place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather in the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign performed and they began to say, surely this is the prophet who had come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew and went to a mountain by himself. Now, if you remember last night, what we said is in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, it is told that Moses is predicting that there will come another prophet who raises up, who is actually greater than Moses. There will be someone else who tells us decisively who God is like. And the people of God are waiting for this prophet. They're waiting to see who this individual is going to be. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and through his miracle, it's suddenly clear to them that this is the final prophet. That yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the final king who rules God's people. He is the priest. He is the final priest who atones for the sins of God's people. And Jesus is the final prophet who decisively reveals God to his people. You know, the prophets helped answer this question, and the questions were this. Questions like, who is God? And what is he like? What is God passionate about? What does God care about? And what does God want us to do? And all throughout the Old Testament, we see small answers to that. And Jesus decisively shows us what God is like. It was like just like yesterday morning, we were in this chapel. And I was introducing my family. And you remember, I was putting all those pictures up on stage. I was like, here's my wife. Here's my daughter. Here's my son. Here's my newest daughter. I wasn't just describing them to you. I was showing you a picture. And because you saw a picture, you don't have to wonder, like, I wonder what Brian's kids look like. You know exactly what they look like because you've seen the picture. And can I tell you the coolest thing in the world? So many people have no idea what God is like. And it's because they don't know the scriptures. Because here's what the scriptures tell us. That Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. That Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. Have you ever wondered what God is like? what God cares about, what God's passionate about, how God feels toward human beings. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. Jesus is the picture, the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the final prophet who communicates exactly what God is like. See, see, listen, we live in a world 
that just loves to kind of like make God this big mystery that no one could ever figure out. And he's so mysterious and no one knows what he's like. So who's to really say? And if you can't really say what God is like, then truth is relative because how could we possibly know? But the Bible has a totally different answer. The Bible says you can know what God is like when you look to Jesus. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that like when I'm worshiping, like when we're in a place like this and we're singing, I'm not thinking of some like invisible deity who I couldn't possibly put my arms around or possibly have my mind on. I'm thinking about Jesus who came and walked and lived on this earth, the resurrected Jesus who the Bible says is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. That's the picture of God that we are meant to have. When they say this must be the prophet, what they're saying is this is finally the one who shows us what God is like. I want you to see how it goes on in verse 35. If you jump down to there, it says, Jesus declared. Jesus declares this. So he's gonna, we're we're going to skip down to verse 35. It says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. If you know the book of John, what you'll know is that seven times in the book of John, Jesus makes a claim that I am blank. In chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door. And again, in chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 14, he says, I am the resurrection and the light. And in chapter 15, he says, I am the vine. Each time he says, I am, what he's using is a construction of language that is identical to the construction of language we see in Exodus chapter 3, when God encounters Moses in a burning bush, and Moses asks, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. And Jesus is claiming that exact title for himself, and he is adding to that by making these claims about who he is. And here, Jesus makes this simple claim. He says, I am the bread of life. And I love this claim. Because it's so simple. Jesus is saying, when you encounter me, when you experience me, when you follow me, you will never be hungry again. You will be satisfied throughout this life. Notice the claim he's making. He's the bread of life. He's the basics of life. He is this basic foundation to this diet they would have. This bread was so simple, even the poorest of people could afford it. And Jesus says, that's what I'm like. I'm the basis. I'm the centerpiece of everything in life. You know what the tragedy is for so many Christians and maybe for some in this room? The tragedy is that so many Christians don't treat Jesus like the centerpiece, like the bread of life. They treat Jesus kind of like a condiment. Like I mentioned yesterday that I'm like the coffee guy, like I love drinking coffee. Uh, I've just long ago decided I was going to drink my coffee black, okay? And so I don't add any cream to my coffee, but like once or twice a year I decide to be a little fancy, okay? Usually it's in the fall, little pumpkin, little nut, like just once or, once or twice, right? And so I'll just like add a little splash of cream and stir it around, totally different from my wife. Like she'll just like add all, like do all the things, her frou-frou drinks, but I just add a little splash, a little splash of cream. And you know what a lot of people do with Jesus? They do a little splash of Jesus, a twist of Jesus, a side of Jesus, a sprinkle of Jesus on top of their life. Jesus isn't the Sunday; He's the whipped cream on top, the little cherry. It's just a nice little thing, but you don't really need it. And let me tell you something. If you are doing this thing where Jesus is this nice little thing you sprinkle on at Hume Lake once a year, or when you go on a mission trip, you just once in a while you sprinkle in a little Jesus, or you just live six days a week just doing whatever you want, and on Sundays you just sprinkle a little Jesus on top of that, it will never satisfy you. In fact, I think one of the most miserable kinds of existence is a kind of existence where you're kind of in with Jesus sometimes, but most of the time out, and you just kind of sprinkle him on your life from time to time. You know what I want to invite you to do? To receive Jesus as the bread of life, where Jesus isn't just a tiny little thing in your life you sprinkle on top, but he's the whole deal. 
He shapes and molds every single little part of your life. Because I got to tell you this, years ago I decided, again, I'm not a perfect man, not a perfect Christian, but years ago I just decided like Jesus was going to be it for me. Like my whole world, my whole life, my whole choices, everything I do is going to be shaped around him. And can I just say just from one man standing here telling you tonight that Jesus has been more satisfying than anything else in this world. Jesus is more satisfying than money. He's more satisfying than power, than fame, than popularity. Jesus is more satisfying than any of the pleasures this life has to offer, any of the things that feel good for a moment. Jesus satisfies me not just in the moment, but for the long haul. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me will never be hungry again. I'll satisfy them forever. This is what Jesus invites us toward, a kind of relationship with him where he owns our entire life. Jesus goes on to teach about this, and truth be told, the people who first heard Jesus speak probably feel like some of you do right now, a little bit frustrated and annoyed with him. Like, can I just say that? I bet you there's some of you in this room who are kind of annoyed with me right now. Because it kind of seems like I'm saying some hard things. I'm like, Jesus is the king. You have to obey him. Jesus is the priest. He actually forgives your sins. Jesus is the prophet. He reveals God. He's the bread of life. Don't just sprinkle him on your life. Make him your whole life. Jesus says some hard things. And people start to react to the hard things that Jesus has to say. So if you're reacting right now going like, I don't know if I like that. I want you to know that that is normal. That's what happens in the Bible. Go down to verse 66 in the same chapter. It's a long chapter. Verse 66. Here's what it says. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In other words, they heard what Jesus was saying where he's like, I'm in charge. Your whole life belongs to me. Don't just give me a little bit. Give me the whole thing. And you know what some people said? It's too much for me. I'm out. I don't want to do this. And you know what I love about my Jesus? He doesn't chase them down. He doesn't beg. He doesn't water down the message just to make sure more people will follow him. He doesn't say, okay, no, 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 I'll take back all I just said. Just, just show up on Sundays if you can and try to put like a cross in your Instagram bio or at the very least a vague reference to a Bible verse, right? Like just do that, right? Just do any minimum thing. Jesus doesn't call for the minimum. He calls for it all. And people walk away from him and he's fine with it. He's okay with it. Like in the end, Jesus is going to call for your whole life, but he's not going to, he's not going to control it in such a way, and he's not going to water down the message in such a way that you just kind of get to come to him, but only a little. Jesus demands all of it. Like I want you to know Jesus demands your whole life. And then in verse 67, after people walk away, he turns to his disciples, his original 12, and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. If you want to write down the final claim we'll talk about for Jesus tonight, it is this simple claim. It is that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One of God. I want you to know this word holy is right at the center of the Bible. All throughout it is this thread that runs through that God is holy. And when we say God is holy, we mean three distinct things, okay? God's holiness means three things. Here's the first thing it means. It means that God is utterly different. When we say that God is holy, it means he is separate. He is different. God is not just a bigger, better version of you. God is entirely different than you. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, if I was God, awesome. You're not God. You're not a little like God. You'll never be God. God created you in his image, but he is the creator. We are the creation. He is wholly separate. To say God is holy is to say he is utterly different. 
Number two, to say that God is holy means he is totally righteous. Write that down, totally righteous, which means everything God says by definition is true, good, and right. It means everything God says is the right thing to do. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. If God says it's right, it's right. And all of us in our pride want to rage against God and redefine morality. But if Jesus is the holy one of God, it means that what Jesus says goes. Jesus is holy. It means he's utterly different. He's, he's totally different. He's totally righteous. He's completely righteous. And then the final thing it means is that he is totally and eternally glorified. That Jesus is, uh, the holy one is utterly different, totally righteous, and eternally glorified. This is what it means for Jesus. Jesus is the holy one of God. There's no one like him. We're not just kind of like Jesus. We're not kind of like God. God is a holy one, utterly different. And so this is what it leads us to tonight. I want to end tonight with a question. And here's the simple question. Who do you think Jesus is? I actually want to ask that question. Maybe tonight in your, in your cabin discussions, you can actually discuss that. And here's what I hope. I hope that if you're a Christian, you might not have all the words we said tonight perfectly dialed in, but I hope you would be able to say, you know who he is? He's my king. He's the priest who took away my sins. He's the prophet who shows me God. He is the holy one of Israel. He is God himself. I hope that some of you would say that out loud, that you would have the courage to say that. And then here's what I hope too in these cabin discussions as you go. If you just ask the question, who is Jesus? And you're not even sure you buy all this Jesus stuff, which there's some of you here, you don't want anything to do with it. I just hope you'd be honest about who you think he is. And I don't mean you just don't believe in him. Like, I want you to say, who is he then? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Is he a manipulator? Is he a total fraud? Who is this guy that history has built itself around? Because the answer to that question means everything in this world. Who is Jesus and what is he actually like? This is the question I want you to wrestle with tonight because here's what's so clear. That God defines himself and reveals himself through Jesus. Because he gets to do that. God defines and reveals himself. And here's the wonderful thing. You don't get a vote. You don't get to decide. You know what happens for far too many people? Is that God creates us in his image. And then you know what we do? We turn around and return the favor. So you know what a lot of us do? God creates us in his image. And then what we do is we go, well, you know what? Um, I've always imagined God would believe these things. Or I've always imagined God is kind of like this. Or I can't imagine God would ever condemn this kind of sin. And what we do is we project all of our beliefs onto God. And then curiously, God happens to believe all of the things you happen to believe. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be wor worshiping a deity of your own making. And for so many of us, what we've done is we've taken all of the beliefs we have as 21st century Western people living in like California, Arizona. We, we're just like, we're gonna have our culture and then we just kind of project that upon God. But here's what I want you to know. If there really is a God and he really did send his son Jesus to reveal himself to the world, he is probably going to disagree with you on a lot of things. And at some point, you are going to have to acknowledge that God does not agree with you on everything, but rather God is who he is. He reveals himself and you do not get a vote. So here's what I want for you. I want you to see Jesus clearly. I want you to know who he is. I want you to be completely clear on who Christ is because the people who get Christ right always get Christianity right. The people who understand Jesus deeply always end up walking in faithfulness 
to Christ. So tonight, as you go into cabin discussion, that's the question I want you to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? Because here's what my Jesus, he is my king. And here's what Jesus claims to be. He claims to be the final king who rules over God's people, the final priest who forgives the sins of God's people, and the final prophet who reveals the God of the universe to each and every one of us. Tonight, I want you to wrestle with that question. Who is this Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks once again for the opportunity to open your word. God, I want to ask nothing less with complete confidence that you'll do this, God, that you would open people's eyes to who Jesus is tonight. That in cabin discussions, in moments of quiet, as people drift off to sleep tonight, that they would be thinking about the son, Jesus that they would be thinking about this final prophet, priest, and king. God, I pray you would open our eyes to who Jesus is and that when we are confident in who Jesus is, that we would flourish as followers of him, a people who trust in him above all else. God, I pray for clarity above all in this camp tonight, that there would be clarity about who Jesus is, what he claims about himself, and what that means for each and every one of us. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is alive and loose in this world. I thank you that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And I thank you that there are people who are going to meet him this week, even people who don't yet know that. God, you are good. You are powerful. You are revealed in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray all these things. And all God's people said real loud.